Hi everyone and welcome to a Light Unto My Path podcast. Uh, I am your host Howard Sides. Uh, today I thought I would do, uh, since today is the 3rd of July, uh, I'd put a lesson together on the 4th of July. Every year I try and do something uh, that has to at least pertain to some part of American history if I can. And uh, this year um, I wanted to focus on an event, uh, I guess if I, if I could put it that way, on, on the very first uh, meeting of the Continental Congress, the very first Continental Congress. And to get to that point, you kind of have to do the background. Um, I, I think some of you, if you've uh, listened to several of my podcasts, you know I'm a, a history buff, so I love the, especially the American history. Um, and there are, of course, innumerable amounts of information and uh, books out there on the subject. <clears throat> One of my favorites uh, is by a man by the name of Dr. William P. Grady, and the name of the book is What Hath God Wrought? And it gives the, uh, it gives a, a, a let me say, faith-based look into the history of America. Uh, sometimes you say religious, and it kind of throws other connotations out there, but uh, it's really more faith-based than religious. Um, if you ever have read the book or if you ever get the book, uh, if listen, if you enjoy reading it and history is something that uh, interests you, uh, get that book. I know it's available out there. Uh, he's actually got two books out. Uh, he's got another one called Final Authority. I actually have that one and have not read it completely through yet, so I uh, can't really make any comments on that one, but it's his other book, What Hath God Wrought, great book, one of my favorite books, and trust me, I've got shelves and shelves of books, my wife can attest to that, <laughs> she'll tell you. Uh, the other set of books, uh, and I just recently came into these, uh, the author's name is Jeff Shara. I believe it is, and please forgive me if I'm pronouncing it wrong. It's S-H-A-A-R-A. It could be Shara, but I think it's Shara, Jeff Shara, Shara, something like that. Uh, anyway, you can tell he, he's a good historical writer. He likes to uh, keep it within the bounds of what actually happened, but of course sometimes he, um, being a, a novelist, he has to write things that pertain to that aspect of it but anyway um he's got several different groups of books he writes on the, uh the civil war events of the civil war uh the american revolution things like that and and he's got two uh a two book volume uh that pertains to the american revolution uh the first book is rise to rebellion and the second book is the glorious cause uh two great books again uh recommend those uh, if you enjoy reading the novel type uh, the history-based fact thing is Dr. William P. Grady's thing. So, And I want to start with a, a quote of his because uh, to get into um, the events that, that led up to the reasons and the calls uh, for a Continental Congress to even be formed, um, it, it starts a little earlier than just the events that happened between uh, George III, King George III, 
uh, of things that were taught or used to be taught in school. I don't, I don't even think they teach them anymore. Uh, we're too concerned with other things. But anyway, uh, to get into to the, the position that the American colonies were in and the situation they faced, uh, I want to start with a quote out of Dr. Uh, Grady's book, What Hath God Wrought? And on page 92, he makes the comment, uh, and I quote, In order to appreciate the supernatural birth of America, one must realize that the delivery was accomplished in spite of several abortive attempts by Satan. These efforts consisted of the Vatican's own missionary burden to outflank the Protestant colonies through infiltration, political intrigue, and a string of strategic outposts, unquote. And he does uh, give the historical points and, and points out uh, uh, events and things that took place at the beginning that, that I mean, you can just see where, uh, of course, America is, was a country founded on uh, religious freedoms and the rights, uh, and they, they trusted and believed that there was one God, uh, and, and they wanted to establish a country based on that belief. And, of course, when you take on a movement, a belief like that, Satan's going to oppose it with everything in his arsenal. Uh, we know that. Uh, and, and so in getting into that, we'll, we'll look at uh, some, of, some of the history involved with that. Uh, and it begins, like I said, with uh, strategic positions. We'll look at strategic positions and then spiritual perception uh, into that. But the strategic, the strategic position, sorry, uh, the first Catholic parish, it was a Spanish one, uh, but the first Catholic parish in America was named uh, Nombre de Dios in St. Augustine, Florida in 1565. And it was established after they slaughtered the French Huguenots that lived at Fort Caroline the year before. If you do not know what French Huguenots are, uh, the Huguenots were French Christians who were persecuted in France and had to make basically move up, I believe it was in Switzerland, and then they had to make their way over to America. And uh, actually, they're talked about and covered in Dr. William Grady's book. So you can read about it in there to get a little more uh, of the background in that. And, and as a matter of fact, in my history of the King James Bible, uh, they play a significant role there too as well. So I mentioned them uh, in my some of my early podcasts there if you want to go back and check that out. Uh, the very first French Catholic settlement in America uh, was on St. Croix Island in Maine in 1604. So now you've got a Catholic parish in Florida. You have a Catholic settlement in Maine. So they're in the south and they're in the north. And what about the middle? Well, in 1632, George Calvert, who was Lord Baltimore... The city is named after him, uh, secured a charter from King Charles I of England to found his own colony called Maryland. And Maryland was named after Charles I's Catholic wife, Henrietta Maria. Now, this colony splits 
the two largest colonies of Virginia and Massachusetts. And so now we have a Catholic presence in the South, a Catholic presence in the North, and a Catholic presence in the middle. And I know what might be crossing some of your minds, and you're like, well, the Catholics are a huge religious group, you know. We know that. I understand that. And you think, well, if they come to America for religious freedom, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't have time to get into all of that, but it, it, it's, it's not a belief in um, God and his son. It, it's a belief based out of the Babylonian dark mysteries. And, and that's a lot of the history. And as we're going through the book of Revelation, uh, we'll bring a lot of that out. A lot of it's covered as we get into chapter 16, I believe it is, uh, which we're just starting to get into chapter 8. So uh, it'll be a little while before we get there. But uh, the evidence is very clear. Uh, the evidence is there. It's all in the clothing that they wear, uh, the ceremonies they perform, the icons that they use. None of that is Christian. None of it is Christian. And anybody who tells you they're a Catholic and a Christian, uh, I mean, it's the, same, it's the same as saying that you are black and you are white. Uh, it's not the same thing. It's the same as saying that it's water and that it's a solid, a liquid and a solid. I, you know, uh, they just can't be the same. There's nothing wrong with either one. But they are totally opposite. So for a Catholic to say that they're a Christian uh, doesn't go. I mean, the Catholics persecuted more Christians than any other religion in the world. So, I, you know, what did they do? Uh, suddenly surrender? Uh, but anyway, this colony that George Calvert uh, created here in Maryland, uh, later in 1649, Maryland adopted what was called the Toleration Act. The Toleration Act. And what the Toleration Act stated was basically that it allowed their citizens to uh, uh, the freedom of conscience as it pertains to religion, except there was a limitation put on it. They had to accept the Trinity, the Trinity being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, which, you know, that's true. I agree with that. But then it said that they could not use offensive terms such as Papist or Jesuits. And the Jesuits, Jesuit priests are, um, for just the simplest term, it is the militant order of the Catholic religion. They are priests, but they are taught as a military function. All right. Uh, later, May 20th, 1774, British Parliament passed what is called the Quebec Act, after Quebec, Can Quebec, Canada. The Quebec Act uh, declared Roman Catholicism as the official state religion of Canada. And by thus claiming that, it also extended her borders south into the Ohio River and west to the Mississippi. Now, at this point in 1774, the talks were already going on uh, and the arguments were already there uh, that England and America were not quite getting along so well. And the Continental Congress started actually in the same year, 1774. So, you know, the talks were going on. But up to that point, uh, the American colonies actually assumed and thought that Canada would become the 14th colony, that they would become part of uh, the American 
landscape, I guess you'd say, at that time. They weren't a country as yet, but it would become one of the colonies. But now with this Quebec Act, what they're looking at is you have a Roman Catholic settlement in Florida, a Roman Catholic settlement in Maine, a Roman Catholic settlement in Massachusetts, I mean, not Massachusetts, sorry, in Maryland, and now over 80,000 uh, French Roman Catholics at their rear. And you think, well, what's the problem with that? Well, part of that history is knowing uh, the uh, Seven Years' War. If you know anything about world history, the Seven Years' War was during this period. Uh, we'll get into it a little bit more. But in the American colonies, it was called the French and Indian War, which is part of that. And it was basically an argument between uh, England and France over territory in America. And it sounds strange that the, that the English Parliament would give basically this much land to French Roman Catholics, but at the same time you have to understand the authority uh, and the power of the Roman Catholic Church. Here are two warring factions, the French and the English, and the Roman Catholic Church had the authority and the power to basically go in there and uh, force or persuade, maybe is a stronger word, <laughs> persuade is a better word, uh, the English Parliament to allow these French Canadians uh, all of this land that they were actually fighting over uh, in this war. And so... Uh, I mean, it's what the war started over, but yeah, anyway, um, continuing on with our point. And I want you to, uh, if you want to turn here in your Bibles, I'm going to use this for a little part of our text, but it's not the main text. Uh, Exodus chapter 14 is uh, where we're going to read from. And what's going on here? Exodus chapter 14 <clears throat> is where... Uh, God had told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And, of course, Pharaoh obviously said no. And so God tells Moses to let Pharaoh know uh, that there's going to be these plagues fall on them until he lets his people go. And, of course, they go through all the plagues. Pharaoh continually says no uh, until the last one where the firstborn of every family that doesn't have the blood over the doorpost uh, is to be killed. And when that happens, Pharaoh finally buckles and says, okay, you can go. He turns the Israelites loose. And if you read your Bible and you know this, uh, many of the families in Eng uh, England, okay, in Egypt gave the Israelites uh, a lot of the items, materials that they used to build the tabernacle, the gold, the silver, all of that. That's where they got it from. I mean, God didn't just drop it out of the heavens on them. Uh, he had the Egyptians give it to them. So here they are. Uh, they're on their trip. They've come out of Egypt. Uh, they're starting through the wilderness. And they're approaching the Red Sea. And that, that's where we're at here in Exodus chapter 14. Now verses 1 through 4 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and encamp before 
before Piaroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal-Ziphon. Before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land, the wilderness hath shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. And to kind of get an idea of what's happening, God's told him where to go exactly. And uh, this place, Piahiroth, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, the name means the mouth of the gorges. The mouth of the gorges. In other words, it's opening up into this valley of these and gorges or uh, open crevices and that sort of thing. And Migdal uh, means a tower. And then against, uh, and it says, and the sea over against Beelzephon. Beelzephon uh, is, uh, the name means Lord of the Cold North. And I don't, I don't know that I, there may be a, a sermon out there by this title. Uh, I know I've put it together this way, but basically um, it's uh, God's people caught between a rock and a hard place. And of course, the hard place could be anything, but the rock, of course, is that Migdal, the tower, and the mouth of the gorges is the caves and valley area there. And what has happened is Egypt has approached the Red Sea. Uh, and if you've ever been to an ocean, I mean, of course, you, you can understand a little bit of what's happening here. Uh, they're coming to the edge of the water. They, they can't move forward. There's this ocean in front of them. And on each side of them are these huge cliffs, basically, uh, rocky walls, the towers of Migdal. Uh, and behind them, uh, God is telling Moses, for Pharaoh will say that they are entangled in the land, the wilderness hath shut them. They're trapped. And Pharaoh has had a change of heart yet again, and he's chasing after Israel. And at some point, uh, as the Israelites are sitting here and they're looking around them, they hear this rumble or feel this vibration in the ground, and they turn and look behind them, and they see this cloud approaching. And they know what this cloud is. It's the Egyptian army. And, of course, they uh, are, are scared. This is not a nation that can defend itself. They're a wandering tribe. So they don't have a military. They don't have an army. They don't have weapons. Uh, they are totally at the mercy of what you would think is the Egyptian army. But that's not true at all. They are totally at the mercy of the Lord who brought them here. That's the key. And so the people... Uh, hear this noise of the Egyptians approaching and they just are freaking out, okay? And you would too, okay? So let's just not be too critical of the Israelites. It seems like we try to be uh, critical of the Israelites, but hey, if we were put in their place, we would be too. Uh, so Moses says, uh, okay, I'm going to take it to the Lord, okay? And we come down later in chapter 14 to verses 13 and 14, and we see probably... Uh, it's a great it's one of my favorite passages of scripture here and, and it contains so much um, uh, I guess the term I'm looking for is Christian doctrine in in such a simple phrase in verse 13 it says 
And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Now, it seems like in the years that I have taught Sunday school, uh, I've had numerous occasion to come right back to these three or two verses here. We as human beings, when we're faced with a problem or when we get into trouble, uh, we immediately want to take action. Whether we want to fight or whether we want to flee, we're always about action. We've got to have our hands in it. We've got to have a part in uh, protecting ourselves or saving ourselves. Here, Moses is telling the people that God has told him, don't be afraid stand still and there's only one other time in the bible that it uses that phrase stand still uh, i think it's second chronicles maybe <laughs> i might be wrong there but i know it's one other time and i think it's in one of the chronicles or uh maybe it's in judges i'm sorry i i, I should have looked that up i didn't think i'd get that to that point but anyway i know it's one other time but but here uh, again, there, there's, there are over a million strong, maybe close to two and a half million people here. And you've got the world's most powerful army bearing down on you in chariots, battle-hardened. Uh, this is not a new army. They, they are seasoned veterans. And the Lord doesn't tell them, hey, flee, run, and hide in these crevices and these gorges, hide, hide in the rock. He says, you just stand still. And, and there's a key to that as you read on into that. Um, and of course, there's been many movies made on this. But I want you to know that based on what the Bible tells us, that God split that ocean apart and taught them, told them to cross over. And it says on dry ground, God made the path dry so that they could cross. And when they crossed... And the Egyptians started through, God brought them waters back together and drowned the entire army. Now, I've heard arguments that, well, this was just a marshland. and they, Well, if it's still a marshland, it's still a miracle that this entire army drowned it in it. But it's not a marshland. It is a literal ocean that God peeled the walls of those waters back to allow them safe passage through. But before he gets to that, the Egyptians actually catch up to the Israelites. And as you read down through uh, uh, the following chapters there and, and, and see this story, the key here is that stand still because what happens is that when the Egyptians catch up to them, there is like this fog bank that sets down over the Israelite camp. And the Egyptians are running these chariots all through there, all among them. And can't see them. God is protecting them. And if they'd have been running around. Hollering and screaming. The Egyptians of course would have picked up on it. Would have found them. But by standing still. God hid them. Until he could open that back door. Until he opened that back door. And allowed them passage through there. Okay so. Seeing that. We're going to use that example. And see 
the position uh, that the American colonies were in. It's very similar. And Dr. William Grady talks about it in, in, the, in his book, What Hath God Wrought, on page 97, and he says, and I quote, Although these several Catholic inroads were perceived as a viable threat to the emerging American experiment, the Lord of Glory had them positioned according to a sovereign plan. Having strategically distanced his children over 3,000 miles from the papal armies of Europe, America's God thought it wise to leave just enough Canaanites in the land to keep his embryonic republic looking to him for their sustained well-being. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. Judges chapter 3 and verse 1. As in the identical predicament of both the ancient and modern state of Israel, a fledgling America would grow best when surrounded by enemy forces on three sides and an ocean at her back. So that is covering the strategic position part of it. And, and to understand the thinking of the American uh, colonials at the time, uh, they weren't fooled by any of this. They, they had spiritual perception. They, they realized what was going on, and they recognized it, and they spoke about it. Uh, James S.J. Hennessy has a book called American Catholics, and in that book, he makes a quote on page 56, uh, and it says, Samuel Adams said, Much more is to be dreaded from the growth of popery in America than from the Stamp Act. And to clarify that, we'll, we'll talk about what the Stamp Act is a little bit in a little bit, but Samuel Adams realized the threat of the Roman Catholic in America. He understood. And not only him, uh, another fellow, a, a man by the name of John Jay, who was going to be a future Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, actually persuaded his colleagues to withhold naturalization from persons who would not renounce all allegiance to every foreign king, prince, potentate, and state in all matters ecclesiastical as well as civil. That means that they, if they would not allow them to be an American if they had religious beliefs other than what America believed or if they had ties with any other king or, or prince or potentate as it was uh, other than America. And that is where America has failed today. We have let that go. We need that back. I mean, how can you have a diverse group focused on a common goal if you do not have a common goal. Uh, all of this mess, all this mess going on today, um, the most recent being the, this Olympian uh, who's standing up there while they're playing the national anthem and she's turning her back on it and all of that. And, and I know she's made the comment that she doesn't hate her country, that she's just making a stand with her people. I get that. But you're disrespecting the flag. And by disrespecting the flag, you're disrespecting these people. You're disrespecting uh, everyone who's died to give them the right to do that. It's an oxymoron. You're protesting the thing that symbolizes the ones who fought to give you the right to do that in the first place. So you're basically protesting your right to protest. I, I mean, 
how ridiculous is that? I, I mean, that's where the, our country is. Okay, but I, I'm getting back on focus. <laughs> um, when the American colonies were started, uh, of course, there were children that were brought over. And so there had to be an education system. Uh, the education system was based on one book called the New England Primer. And, and focusing on how even the colonists, the American colonists, they understood what was going on. Uh, they, they actually talked about it in, in their elementary lessons. Uh, the New England Primer contained an elementary lesson uh, of a John Rogers verse. And, and I guess John Rogers was a writer of rhymes and that sort of thing. Uh, but get a load of this. Now, this was an elementary lesson. All right. Uh, it, it contains an elementary lesson of John Roberts' verse uh, that says, Abhor that arrant whore of Rome and all her blasphemies, and drink not of her cursed cup. Obey not her decrees. And <laughs> that abhor the adhor, arrant whore of Rome, uh, that's Revelation. In chapter 16, we get to it. You'll, you'll see how that ties in there. Uh, November the 5th was a day that was declared Pope's Day in America, or, or the colonies at that time. It wasn't quite America yet, but in the colonies. But Pope's Day was a day where the adults would ceremoniously burn His Holiness at the stake while kids played such games as break the Pope's neck. That's right. Break the Pope's neck. Uh, there, there was no hidden agenda here. There was no uh, secrecy involved. It was right out in the open. I mean, the, these people were smart. They knew what was coming. They knew what was going on. Uh, but when the adults had this burn his holiness at the stake, I wonder where they got that from. Have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? I believe that's where they got it from. They knew who put them in this position in the beginning. How did America come about? It was the persecution of the Roman Catholic Church that forced, basically, them into a position where they came to America. All right, now, getting a little bit closer to the actual American Revolution. There uh, were many events involved in what became uh, the situation that, that the Americans revolted, but it can be kind of wrapped up into seven main events. Seven main events that caused or brought about uh, the American Revolution. Uh, <laughs> Revolution. Revolution. <laughs> I'm in the book of Revelation. All right. Uh, the very first act was this, what we've mentioned before, the Stamp Act. Uh, the Stamp Act came out in March of 1765. Now, what's happened here is, uh, we just mentioned uh, in the first part of it, this Seven Years' War. Uh, the Seven Years' War went on from 1754 to 1763. In the American colonies, it's called the French and Indian War. Now, what's ironic about that name is you think, and I did when I was younger, didn't know any better, it was the French fighting the Indians. And that's not what it was. There were uh, French and Indians on one side, and then there were um, uh, the British and American colonials and Indians on that side as well. Uh, so there were French and Indians and the English-American Indian War thing. So, okay. Now, the fight was basically between the colonies of British America and those of what was called New France. 
and it was over territory. Um, common cause for many fights, many wars. It was over territory. Uh, the royal governors were saying that the French were encroaching on their territory. And, and basically the entire war, the entire Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War, as you want to call it at that part, it was only part of it because it involved a lot, much larger thing. But anyway, it all started on May the 28th, 1754, when a 22-year-old lieutenant colonel of the Virginia militia led a group of British soldiers and Mingo warriors into southwestern Pennsylvania to confront French ensign Joseph Colon de Jumonville, if I said his name right, J-U-M-O-N-V-I-L-L-E, uh, you can look it up, it's out there, uh, who was charged with trespassing on British soil by the royal governor. In a surprise attack, the Virginians killed 10 French soldiers, including the French commander, and also took 21 prisoners. Only one of the Virginians is killed. Now, this young lieutenant colonel, who was the commander of the Virginia militia forces, who happened to start an entire world war involving 13 countries and multiple American Indian tribes, was none other than George Washington. So, George Washington, you can't say single-handedly because uh, there's a lot of argument that this Mingo, the Mingo warriors uh, were in a, a war against the other Indian tribes over, again, territory. And so he knew this George Washington was a fresh military officer, didn't know much about the politics and the strategies behind it, and kind of let things play out into where there would be a war. He basically manipulated George Washington starting this war, but George Washington is credited with it anyway. Now, ultimately, uh, the British Empire was successful and France had to secede their portion of the American territory that was being fought over. Now, as this war nearly bankrupted the British Empire, King George III felt it not only a common action, uh, but also a necessity to impose this Stamp Act of 1765 which basically taxed the American colonies by imposing a stamp duty on newspapers as well as all legal and commercial documents. And basically what this money was going to do was build back up the uh, British coffers after being depleted from this war. And this was not something new. This is something that went has been going on for hundreds of years, uh, not only in England, but in France and in every country where there's a king. Uh, that goes out to war, they have to have the money to fight these wars, and how they do that is they tax their citizens. I mean, it's just something that happens. But, with this Stamp Act, uh, due to an overwhelming backlash from the colonies, under the slogan, No Taxation Without Representation, the Stamp Act was repealed a year later. So you may ask, what does that mean, No Taxation Without Representation? Now, the argument here was the American colonies wanted a representative in the English Parliament to speak on their behalf. The Parliament, of course, would not allow it because they looked at the Americans as basically second-class citizens while they were the elite of the English royalty and all of that. It was power, it was position, and they were not about to allow anyone from the colonies to come and sit in Parliament. Now, during this time, 
Benjamin Franklin is actually in England and he does represent the colonies uh, or actually I think he's representing specifically Pennsylvania pretty sure uh, but each one of the colonies uh, had a representative who could bring the letters uh, that they write and things of this nature into Parliament or to the king, as it were, uh, but they did not have a position in Parliament. So the argument was, you're not taxing us if we don't have representation over uh, who's making the rules. And, and uh, the, it, the the backlash was so overwhelming that, that King George uh, in the English Parliament, they couldn't understand it. And it was because they'd been doing this for years. And and the Americans knew this because, I mean, they came from England. They understood what was going on. But it was that argument. No taxation without representation. So that was the first event. The second event is called the Townsend Acts of June and July of 1767. Now, basically what this is, is British Parliament enacts a tax on all goods imported to America from Great Britain and elects a board of customs commissioners to stop smuggling and trading with all the other countries. Uh, be, because up to this point, while there was a lot of trade going between America and England, uh, Great Britain, as it were, there were also some people who were trading with the Dutch and, and the Spanish and the French, whoever, uh, you know, was just an open trade, you know. There were no rules or regulations with it. And the English were like, well, okay, well, we're going to clamp down on it and make sure that they can only get it from us and be done with it. Now, uh, in response to the Townsend Acts, the colonies organize a boycott of British goods and start harassing these customs commissioners. And when I say harassing them, what I'm talking about is an event called tarring and feathering them. And what that meant was uh, they would take tar, like you use paving roads today uh, and they would pour it on these people and throw feathers on them and basically they look like a chicken <laughs> and that was basically the idea behind it is that they were bending uh, to, to British control and not standing up as an American citizen or a colonial citizen however it was they were chicken a, a coward uh, and so in response to that the now Great Britain sends troops to occupy Boston which leads to the third event, which is called uh, the Boston Massacre of March 1770. Uh, now, this started with a disagreement between an apprentice wig maker and a British soldier. I don't know what the argument was. Uh, if it's a wig maker, he could have been making one, but for British soldiers, usually couldn't afford them, so I don't know what the argument was. Probably started as a barroom brawl, uh, you know, little alcohol-induced temper flares. Who knows what it was? But it, that's the simple start to this. It grew to the point where it ended up there were 200 angry colonists surrounding seven British troops on the steps of the Customs House. When the colonists began taunting them and throwing things at them, the soldiers began firing into the crowd. Basically, a snowball fight started the revolution. <laughs> That's what one person says. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Ends up... <coughs> excuse me. All right, ends up... Uh, three colonists uh, die, and two others are mortally wounded. Now, in this event, 
the military commander of the English. Uh, I had his name. I didn't write it in here. I'm sorry. apologize for that. But I did have his name. Uh, uh, but the commander keeps telling the soldiers to hold their fire. Hold their fire. And so eventually what happened, probably somebody got hit in the face. And they got angry and pulled the trigger. And it started the whole thing. So, um, during this time, there was a group called the Sons of Liberty. The Sons of Liberty uh, was led by a man, uh, we still know his name today, Samuel Adams. He is a very active anti-English uh, person. <laughs> uh, not in the sense that he hated the English, and in, in reading all accounts, I don't even really think he hates the English government. It's, it's that he understands fully and, and is just emotional about the fact uh, behind this whole statement, no taxation without representation. He is convinced by this point that America has no choice but to act on her own. Now, while the word independence is not used yet in a lot of circles, uh, I believe the idea was in place. The seed was planted and it was starting to bloom. And he knew that. Now, as the leader of the Sons of Liberty, when this event takes place, he used this incident as propaganda against British occupation. Uh, they misrepresented the story by its facts in the newspapers. How common does that sound today? Uh, but the most effective tool happened to be this engraving out of metal that misleadingly depicted the British as the aggressors. And when you look up the Boston Massacre, uh, if you Google that, almost immediately the first thing you're going to see is probably a copy or a picture of this metal engraving. Who was the artist? None other than Paul Revere. He was uh, a worker in metal, a metallurgist, I guess you call it. Uh, he made this engraving that was used to fuel the anti-English sentiment that led to the American Revolution. All right, so there's three events. <clears throat> Excuse me. The fourth event uh, is known as the Boston Tea Party of December 1773. Now, uh, British Parliament repeals much of the Townsend Acts because they, you know, they're seeing the backlash from all of this, uh, with the exception of the tax on imported tea, called specifically the Tea Act. Now, this action financially supported the struggling British East India Company, which allowed them to sell tea far cheaper than American importers of Dutch products. Because you remember, there are they already or blockading trade from every other country with America, uh, with America. So, you know, they're trying to funnel all the tea that America buys into uh, coming from this British East India Company. And it was during this time, uh, and Jeff Shara even makes some little funny comment about it, that when Benjamin Franklin uh, uh, is trying coffee for the first time as a replacement of tea, because of this whole Tea Act, as part of that Townsend Act, but it's the Tea Act. Uh, but the Sons of Liberty, uh, 
what eventually happens is the Sons of Liberty barely disguise as Mohawk Indians. I mean, they don't, they're not really trying to hide themselves as Mohawk Indians, but they typically take the look so that there's an excuse to not say, well, we know who they were, but they could say they were Mohawk Indians. Uh, they boarded three British ships in Boston Harbor and dumped more than 92,000 pounds of British tea into the water while never harming any of the crew or the ships. And they even returned the next day to replace a padlock that had been broken. But this event really ticks off British Parliament. And the reason behind that is because many of the men uh, that were members of this British Parliament had invested a thousand pounds sterling, which was close to about a million dollars today, uh, into this company as a profitable venture. Because they're making the rules. They know what's going to happen. If, if they block all the tea coming from anywhere else but from this one company, British East India, then they're assuming the Americans are going to have no one else to buy it from, and their profits are going to go through the roof, and by investing in this company, they're going to gain profits off that. Insider trading. All of this stuff going on today, everybody thinks is something new. This stuff has been going on for hundreds, quite possibly thousands of years. There, uh, even Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. We're just repeating history. All right? So there's your third event, the Boston Tea Party. The fifth event is the coercive acts, the coercive acts of March to June 1774. <clears throat> in response to the Boston Tea Party, British Parliament passes a series of laws called the Coercive Acts, which included uh, the closing of Boston Harbor until restitution was paid for the destroyed tea. Second, it replaced the colony's elected officials with one appointed by Great Britain. Instead of allowing them to elect their own judges, their own mayors, and that sort of thing, now they were sent over from Great Britain, or elected by Great Britain. Third, it gave sweeping powers to the British military commander who was located in Boston, General Thomas Gage. Fourth, it forbade all town meetings without approval. Uh, and now, what that did was uh, it was meant to curb this rising uh, hostility of anti-English everything. Now, the town hall meetings were the most effective tool for the Sons of Liberty to inform all citizens of what the British government was doing. Otherwise, they just didn't have the information to know what was going on. This was how they did it. It was called a town hall meeting. Uh, fifth, it protected all British colonial officials charged with capital offenses from being tried in Massachusetts versus being sent to another colony or back to Great Britain. Now, of course, this is targeting Massachusetts squarely because that's where Boston was and where most of this action is going on. Um, sixth is the Quartering Act. The Quartering Act. And basically what the Quartering Act is, it was a provision which allowed British military officials to demand accommodations for their troops in unoccupied houses and buildings in the town. And the cost of quartering and feeding the troops was levied against the colonists. In other words, the colonists had to pay for it. And these, now on the surface, unoccupied houses building the town, uh, you know, these troops had to stay somewhere. I, I mean, I get that. But it's the principle of the thing. 
these were somebody's houses. These were somebody's businesses. Uh, they were not just abandoned houses and buildings. They were unoccupied. And the reason they were unoccupied was because when the British come in, those who were loyal to the colonists' beliefs, many of them fled. They had no choice but to flee. They were scared of getting arrested and so forth. <clears throat> now, one of the events that, that added fuel to this took place, place on September the 1st, 1774, and it's called the Powder Alarm. The Powder Alarm. What happens uh, here is Lieutenant Colonel George Madison led 260 British troops into Charlestown, Massachusetts, to seize the largest supply of gunpowder in the state. Well, in the colony at the time. Now, although it was a peaceful turnover, because what they did was when they come into town, they approached the sheriff, who was a uh, loyal uh, citizen with the English, <clears throat> a Tory, as they called him, uh, gave, the, gave him the keys to the tower where all the gunpowder was located, and they just walked up there, unlocked the door, and took it out floated it down the river to the fort. They just took it. Now, rumors spread that British troops had fired on the locals and that Boston was being bombarded by British warships. You know how you're taught how rumors gain color and size as is told down the line? Here's a perfect example of that. That's what has happened here. Now, within 15 minutes of this rumor starting, 15 minutes, over 50 armed militiamen show up at the scene, but of course the gunpowder and the troops were already gone. Uh, they sent out word to surrounding towns uh, to gather weapons and join them, and they started heading to Boston. <clears throat> now by the next morning, General Gage uh, and the other commanders there, they wake up and discover that they are surrounded by over 5,000 angry militiamen seeking revenge. But within a few days, the truth of the raid came out, and the militiamen dispersed and, and went back to their hometowns. So that, that was close, but it shows a representation or a picture of how these colonies and, and the towns in these colonies uh, are starting to come together. 5,000 is not a small group, so there's that. Uh, the next event involved with this is September the 6th, 1774, which is called the Wooster Revolt. And it, it's spelled out Worcester, but I, I have an aunt and some family who live in um, Massachusetts, so I know that's pronounced Wooster. The Wooster Revolt. Now, King George III, again, remember, had declared that all American court systems were illegal and had appointed all crown control courts to replace them. Well, Later on in August, General Gage writes a letter to Lord Dartmouth, who is basically King George's second-hand man, uh, stating that he would send, quote, a body of troops into that township, Wooster, and perhaps into others as occasion warrants to preserve the peace. But then later in early September, he began to rethink that decision, admitting in another letter to Dartmouth that he had been informed that, quote, from undoubted authorities that the flames of sedition had spread universally throughout the country beyond conception and that no courts could proceed on business, unquote. So he realized the opposition he was facing. But at dawn on this day, September the 6th, an advanced militia party seized the courthouse and barricaded themselves inside. Then 4,622 
exact number, well-organized, well-trained, and highly disciplined militiamen from 37 Worcester County towns marched to Main Street and assembled themselves into 37 town military companies along both sides of Main Street, determined to shut down the courthouse to prevent the 25 new crown appointees from entering. Now, when the 25 men arrived, they were denied entry and escorted to the nearby Daniel Haywood Tavern. Facing a hostile militia group with threats of tarring and feathering, the men reluctantly signed documents disavowing their appointments by King George III. They were then marched publicly, hat in hand, through the procession of troops toward the courthouse, recanting out loud their oaths of office and repeating their disavowals so that all assembled militiamen could hear. All right, so that's five events. Here's the sixth event. Lexington and Concord, April 1775. Now, Colonel Francis Smith led a force of 700 British soldiers from Boston to Lexington, planning to capture Samuel Adams and John Hancock, who were the main leaders of the Sons of Liberty, and to seize the gunpowder supply of the militia that was located there. Now, the American spies found out and sent riders out to warn the people, such as Paul Revere, who alerted everyone that the British are coming. In Lexington... The militia commander, Captain John Parker, outnumbered 10 to 1, ordered his 77 men to allow the British troops to pass by, but he said, and I quote, Stand your ground. Don't fire unless fired upon. But if they mean to have a war, let it begin here, unquote. Now, as the English were passing by, one of the British commanders, Major John Pitcairn, orders, Disperse, you expletive rebels. Lay down your arms. And in the following confusion, as they were beginning to lay them down, somewhere, somewhere, somehow, some way, a finger pulls a trigger, and it begins a bloody encounter. By the end of it, eight Americans lay dead or dying, with another nine wounded, while the British suffer two slightly injured. And one of those uh, was Major Pitcairn's horse. So it <laughs> wasn't even two bodies, but two persons, but... One was a soldier, one was a horse. Um, the British continue marching on towards Concord, a short distance away. And as they're marching, they're kind of whooping and hollering and kind of chiding the Americans or the colonists. Now, upon reaching Concord, uh, the British assumed that they would be taking control of a rebel town of about 1,500 citizens. What they did not know was that over 400 angry musket-toting farmers were massing against them across the Old North Bridge with the sun rising at their backs. Basically, they couldn't see them coming. Now, British Captain Walter Lorry had his company halfway across the bridge when the Americans were spotted. Now, once he had his men back across the river, <clears throat> excuse me, before he got them in order, he gave the order to fire before they were set up in a defensive position. When the Americans returned fire, the volley was so devastating that many of the British soldiers turned and ran from the fight. In the end, the Americans suffered 49 killed, 39 wounded, and 5 missing in action, while the well-seasoned and professional British forces suffered 73 dead, 174 wounded, and 26 missing in action for an overall casualty factor of 20%. Quite a shocking different result after the early morning campaign in Lexington. Now, as there was no sign of their reinforcements, the British had no choice but to form up and hastily back, march back to Boston, finally joining up with the missing reinforcement group, which had also been attacked. 
What they did not realize was that the Americans were not quite finished with them yet. Now, Dr. William Grady, in his book, What It's Got God Wrought, says, and I quote, As the combined British forces limped back to Boston via a detour through Charleston, American marksmen continued to decimate their ranks, running from front to flank and from front flank to rear, loading their pieces at one place and discharging them at another. An expanding network of peeling church bells ensured a steady influx of fresh shooters along the highway of death. Unquote. All right, I'm about to run out of time, so I'm going to have to pick up uh, in the next episode with the seventh reason uh, event that caused the uh, American Revolution and then continued from there. So uh, I'm going to stop now, and hopefully you'll pick it up on the next episode coming right behind this one, okay? Thank you for listening.